Thank you for joining us on uh, this Easter morning. Happy Resurrection Sunday, y'all. It is a great day to gather and to, uh, and to celebrate. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Um, we spent the last six weeks looking at 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, it, is, it is the longest, most extensive teaching in the New Testament, not only on the resurrection of Christ, but the future resurrection of believers. I, I hope you have enjoyed the study. If you uh, are just tuning in, don't worry, we'll get you up to speed, but you can also catch all the previous messages online. We have both audio and video available. Now, here's the thing. In this chapter, Paul is laying out a case. Since Jesus rose from the dead, you also will rise. Now, not surprisingly, that was a message that the Corinthians were having a hard time believing. Um, I don't know if there's ever been an audience where their first impulse was, well, of course we're all going to rise from the dead. It goes against everything we know about life, right? Everything we experience, right? Death is the end, right? And so for them to be skeptical is actually very predictable and very understandable because we are too, right? So they're, they're in the background kind of wrestling like, well, maybe this death thing's a metaphor, Right? Maybe Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, and he's not really talking about us rising from the dead. Maybe it's talking about us, you know, gaining new life or having new hope. Or, and even if they were to come back from the dead, man, seriously, you think that, that rotted corpse is going to come out of the ground? Like, really, Paul, you think that? So what Paul does is he lays out his case systematically through this chapter. He begins historically and says um, the resurrection uh, of Christ is a historic reality. Um, and, and you have to find ways to explain it if you don't think it was, right? He, he tells them there were 500 people who saw Jesus when he rose from the dead, right? He didn't do it 200 years later, 2,000 miles away. It was at the very time, at the very place of the crucifixion, 500 people. He's like, many of them are still alive. Now, of course, it's not true for us, but for his original readers, he's like, go on, y'all. They're happy to talk to you. There, there are 500 eyewitnesses. Not only that, I'm an eyewitness, right? How do you explain that I die daily? Not just me, but all the apostles. Like, like, we go out to share this good news with others. We suffer every day. We die every day. We, we, we're, we're all like, like losing ground and, and, and losing reputation and suffering physically and suffering emotionally, and, and, and we're all going to go die. <laughs> and they did, right? Some of them were crucified upside down. Some beheaded. They were all martyred. He's like, how do you explain that? We saw Christ raised from the dead. It's a compelling argument, not just back then, but, but today, right? And then he goes on and he says, not only is it a historic reality, it's a theo- theological necessity, right? Corinthians, some of the Corinthian church wanted the benefits of the gospel without the historical reality of the gospel. They, they wanted church and they wanted community and they wanted grace and they wanted forgiveness and, and they wanted all the good things that come with being part of a community of, of faith. But they did, you know, the, the historical reality of the death and resurrection of Christ, well, not so much. And he says, look, you cannot have the fruit without the root. You, you can't have the, the fruit of faith, hope, and love. Of, of forgiveness, of recreation, of a new community, of a mission, of love. You can't have the fruit without the root because they can't truly exist without the death and resurrection of Christ. It is a theological necessity. And as far as getting your body back, you're thinking about it all wrong. He's like, don't think about death and resurrection like your body going into some deep freezer, right, where it's going to be pulled out later, and hopefully it doesn't have too much freezer burn, right? No, that's the wrong paradigm for understanding this. He says it's more like a seed being planted in the ground. And in the same way, the seed is the oak tree. In the same way that an unborn baby is the same as an adult human 
You will be the same, but you will be radically different. You will be the same, but you will be radically transformed. Don't think about it like you getting just that old body back. It will be transformed. See, Paul's fighting really hard to make his point. The resurrection is the necessary part of God's plan. And without the resurrection, it all falls apart. For those that would want to claim the benefits of Christianity without the historical foundation of Christianity, they go against everything that the original uh, apostles that Jesus himself taught. It is foundational to our faith. Now, here's, here's what I want you to hear this morning. It's really, really good news that Jesus rose from the dead. And it is good news that we also will be resurrected. That is part of God's plan. We will all be raised from the dead. But here's what you need to hear this morning. Apart from God's grace, this would be some of the worst news you could ever hear. Apart from the grace of God, the promise of your resurrection would be some of the worst news you could ever receive. If Christ had not taken the sting out of death, our resurrection would be the worst news we could ever receive. So let's take a look at our passage and unpack this, right? So our passage starts in verse 50 when he says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's he's really finishing his thought that we started last week, which was um, that that since Jesus was raised, you too shall be raised. And and in verses 50 through through 53, he is answering their concern, like, what happens if I don't die before Jesus comes back, right? He's like, don't worry, right? The dead will be raised and they'll be transformed. And the ones that are still alive Man, you don't have to die to get the benefit of resurrection. You will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, right? You will be transformed in the same way that Jesus turned water into wine, right? He not only turned water into grape juice, he turned it into well-aged and and very tasty fermented grape juice, right? That was a transformation, not just in kind, but in time. He's He's like, don't worry, God can take care of you even if you don't die. You will be transformed you will get the benefit of Christ's resurrection. You will be miraculously changed in the moment. And, and then, and then, when the dead are raised and, when, and those that are alive are, are miraculously and suddenly transformed will come the moment we have all been waiting for. The moment when death will be finally swallowed up in victory. Take a look at verses 54 and 55. When the perishable... This broken body that I've received from from the first Adam puts on the imperishable, the new body that's like Christ's. And the mortal, this body that's infected with death, puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is said, death is swallowed up in victory. He quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah when Isaiah was looking forward to this glorious day. And then he goes to, or Isaiah, and then he goes to Hosea. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death. Where is your sting? And then we come to verses 56 and 57. It's the triumphant conclusion of his entire argument. I'm going to put it on the screen behind me. Because we're going to be sitting in these two verses for the rest of our time this morning. He says, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are three clear points in these two verses. The first is that the sting of death is sin. The second is that the power of sin is the law. 
And the third is, even though that's true, we can still give thanks because there's a victory. So I want to look at these each in order. Uh, we have a tendency often as Bible readers to stay at about 10,000 feet, right? While we're reading these things, we just kind of skim over the top. We're like, oh, hey, that sounds kind of cool, but we don't really think about what it says. So I want to unpack this this morning because this is, this is kind of profound what's happening here. All right, so we're going to look first of all at that, at that first point. The sting of death is sin. What in the world does that mean? Because here's the thing. We all know, biblically and historically, that death is the result of sin, right? When, when God looked at our first parents and said, don't eat from the tree in the garden, the day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. He was saying you will introduce a new concept into the created order called death. Now, I know um, that there, there's some debate about how to read the initial chapters of the book of Genesis, and different people approach it in different ways. And I know for some of you, you may be skeptical on, on exactly how to read that. But here's where, no matter how you read it, I hope we can agree here, it is incredibly insightful. Not only into the character and nature of God, but into the character of the human condition. There, it is profoundly, the first three chapters of Genesis give us a profound insight into why our lives are the way they are why we feel the way we feel and struggle the way we struggle. Because what we see in, in this rebellion is something profound. In the day that they ate of the fruit, they didn't physically die. They went on living, right? They had kids and, and they, had, they had actually very long lives, much longer than most of us would ever uh, dream of having, right? So, so how did, was, was, was God in that moment like a parent, like trying to just threaten their kid out of bad behavior? Like, if you do that, I'll knock down the whole house. And then they do it. And you're like, bluff called. All right. I won't knock down the house this time, right? I mean, is, is that what God's doing? Like trying to throw this huge threat out there? And, and then when it happened, he's like, oh, man, called my... No. Because here's the thing. Death does not mean ceasing to exist. Death, the essence of death, is separation. In the moment they ate of the tree, they died. Because they were separated from God, the source of life. They experienced a profound spiritual death that affected every aspect of their experience in life and led eventually to their physical death, which was when their soul was separated from their body, right? Death is the separation from life, the separation from the presence of God spiritually, the separation from a body of life that gives me uh, a human existence, right? I don't cease to exist. I am separated um, from what I need to experience life. So death. Death came from sin, right? So sin preceded death. Death came from sin, but now Paul is telling us that sin is the sting of death. So death came from sin, but sin then inhabited death in a deadly way. Sin is the venom that makes death so terrifying an enemy. Uh, in my previous life, when I was a principal way back in the day, uh, I had some pets that I kept in my office, um, two snakes. Uh, they were corn snakes. One was about a uh, three or four foot. Um, we named him Slithery. The other was, I don't even remember him. Um, he was there, but I, I don't remember his name. Somebody gave him to me. I liked Slithery. Um, now, here's the thing. They stayed in my office. My wife hates snakes. 
And uh, she told me that if I ever brought the snake home, it was a declaration to her that I wanted a divorce so she would file. Um, <laughs> and so those snakes stayed in my office, but my kids loved the snakes and I, I loved sharing them with my kids and, and really all my students. I would take them around to the classroom. Uh, one day, uh, my daughter wanted to feed the snake and, um, and I wasn't really paying attention. I just assumed she would take the food and drop it in like, like, like I do. And instead, she slowly lowered it in <laughs> by hand. And, um, and the, the snake, slithering, um, excited by the smell of food, struck. And instead of grabbing the food, grabbed her finger. Um, so she was snake bit. Uh, she jumps back. She was scared. Um, there might have been a small cry out loud. Uh, but here's the thing. There really wasn't a whole lot more. You know why? Because um, slithery really couldn't do a whole lot of damage. Um, he's not a venomous snake, right? His, death, his, his bite can scare you. His bite can even hurt you a little bit. But, but his, his bite cannot really harm you. You guys, death is like a serpent. But the real danger of a serpent comes in its venom in the poison. So sin, sin produces separation from life. Sin produces separation from God. And then sin is the poison that fills that space. What used to be filled with life, what used to be filled with intimacy, what used to be filled with joy is now venomously filled with sin. It is the the poison that fills the space. When you read through Genesis chapter 3, the chapter of the Great Rebellion, um, man, you, you can see that every critical relationship is affected by this spiritual death. Um, Adam and Eve, they immediately feel the effect of separation from God, right? They God comes to walk with them in the cool of the evening, um, which was apparently a practice. Um, and, and instead of finding Adam and Eve willingly and joyfully ready to invite them and, and to laugh with God and walk with God and rest in God and be secure in God and to be loved with God, by God, instead he finds Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes like elementary kids hiding behind the curtains. He says, where are you? Not because he didn't know. God never asks questions because he doesn't know. He asks questions because there are things we don't know. He doesn't ask questions because he has something to discover. He asks questions because we have something to discover. And in that moment, they needed to discover that there was a profound consequence to their rebellion. Where are you? Far from God. Instead of inviting God into their presence, instead of Instead of feeling the love of God and feeling the welcome of God and feeling secure in the presence of God, they now felt like God was a threat. They now felt like God was someone they needed to pretend in front of and put up a false front in front of. And if, and if he pushed too hard with questions that led them to uncomfortable, honest humility, they deflected and they blame shifted. They pretended. They performed. You guys, we are born with that same inheritance. Our relationship with God is, is no longer one of trust and love. Instead of finding our security in, in God, we look for it in our jobs or our, our 
401ks or, or in certain relationships. Instead of finding our significance in the glory of God, we now look for it in our pedigrees, our, our trophies, uh, the applause of, of people. Instead of finding our approval and, and, and joy and being loved by the outpouring of God's love, we look for it in relationships. We look for it online. We look for people to tell us we're lovable because we desperately have such a hard time believing it. Instead of finding our rest in the presence of a God who delights in being with us and gives us a delightful creation to explore with Him in pleasure and in joy, we instead distract ourselves into exhaustion and run ourselves into the ground, pursuing pleasures that we know at the end of the day are going to leave us empty, exhausted, and frustrated. We look to the things that God made to be for us what only God can be, to do for us what only God can do. Because there's a gap between us and God. There is a separation, and it is filled with a venom of distrust and fear. We feel distant from God, and as a result, we mistrust Him. And often our first impulse is to wrestle with Him instead of rest in Him. Now, that affects every other relationship we have. First, it affects our relationship with ourselves. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 suddenly discover they're naked and cover themselves with fig leaves, which, of course, we like to make fun of. It's like, ha, 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 of course, it's, oh, look, I'm naked. I must cover these parts, right? Um, but that's not what this chapter's about at all. It's not about nudity. It is that they suddenly are aware they have something to hide. It's the birth of shame. For the first time in human experience, our first parents suddenly realized that there was something about them that they desperately didn't want anyone to see, that needed to stay hidden, that they didn't even want to look at themselves. They would bury it so deeply that not only could others not see it, they themselves didn't want to look at it. In this moment was born the inner critic that sits in the back of our minds condemning us, critiquing us, telling us, you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not intelligent enough, you're not strong enough. See, there was a, a gap. There was this death that took place in our relationship with ourselves. And what filled the gap? Not trust, not love, not joy. The venom of sin. It was filled with mistrust, deception, pride, and shame. That, of course, spills out into our relationship with others because we bring that death, that internal brokenness that flows from our, our broken relationship with God into relation with others. Instead of living in community, we now live in competition. Think about the closest relationships you have. They are often the places of your greatest joy, but they are also often the places of your greatest pain. Because the people we allow in, we are most vulnerable with, bring the sharp edges of their sin into that space, and they hurt us. And we hurt them. And as a result, there's a separation between us and others, even our closest friends, our lovers, our children. There's a gap 
where we pull back and instead of saying, I am for you, I will live for your good, I will pour myself out knowing you'll do the same for me, we show up and we're continually asking, how are you living for me? How are you going to bless me? How are you going to be good for me? And insofar as you are good for me, I will entrust myself to you. We're not living in community, we're living in competition with self-interest at the core. Because there's a death, there's a separation, there's a gap, and in that gap is no longer love and trust and joy. It is filled with mistrust, the venom of pride and of shame, a separation. It all flows because there's a gap, a, a death between us and God that leads and into affecting every other relationship we have. The sting of death is sin. Sin created death, the separation from life, and then sin fills the gap that was created with all of its ugly cousins. Mistrust, fear, doubt, self-condemnation, others' condemnation, pride, racism, sexism, anything that can cause us to exalt ourselves over others, anything that could cause us to feel inferior to others. Now, here's the thing, y'all. It's in our blood. When we got bit, that venom went into our blood. It is in our blood. This is not a problem we can solve. We can't just put a Band-Aid on the bite. We have been infected and having been infected, it is a problem for which we cannot come up with a cure. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Let's think about that one for a little while. What does that mean? The power of sin is the law. Um, here, Paul is talking about the Old Testament law. Right? Now, it would be true of all laws, honestly, uh, because all laws work in, in, in according to the same principle. But here Paul has in mind the Old Testament law, the law that was between the nation of Israel and the God of Israel. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. Most of you know it by the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were the down payment of the law, right? The most memorable piece of the law. Now, there's 613 commandments in the law, but the first ten are kind of the heart of it and the summary of it. The power of sin is the law. A lot of people think that God gave the law in the Old Testament to help us be better people. A lot of people think that God gave the law so that it would be good advice on how to live better lives. Do these things and, and you'll be better people. Do these things and you'll be better citizens. Do these things and, and, and you'll help fix the problem you've created. Right? Many of us take it as an addition to our self-improvement, self-salvation projects. All right, Ten Commandments. Do not covet. All right, I won't do that thing. Do not steal. All right. Don't commit adultery. I'm good. Not going to do those things. I will not do those things. Now, here's the thing. The law was never given to make us better people. The law was never given to be added to our self-improvement projects. That is not even close to God's intent in the law. 
Do you want to know why God gave us the law? In the book of Romans, it tells us two surprising reasons. Let me show it to you. First of all, Romans 3.20. I'll put it on the screen behind me. For by the works of the law, no human's being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Catch the first part. No one will be justified in his sight through the law. In other words, the law was never given as your self-improvement project. Obeying the law doesn't make you somehow better with God. Trying to obey the the law will have absolutely no power in increasing your merit before God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Because it was through the law that comes the knowledge of sin. The law wasn't given so we could fix ourselves. It was given so we could see ourselves. The law shows us who we really are. You guys ever use one of those maniacal torture devices called a makeup mirror? They're horrible. It's like, let's not just show you your face. Flip this lever and it's magnified. And then turn on these super bright white lights. And if you flip it again, it gets magnified even more. You not only see your pores, you see your pores inside your pores. Pretty soon, you are looking at an alien surface. No wonder you buy so much makeup. Because you're terrified by what you see, right? Those things are torture. Get get rid of it. That's what the law is, y'all. The law is a makeup mirror. It is brutally honest. God gave it to us to show us things we don't want to see. He gave it to us to show us things we want to pretend aren't there. Give you an example. The commandment, do not covet. You're like, all right, I won't steal. There's a nice car. I won't steal it. Right? I did it. I went into a store today, and I didn't shoplift. I did it. Yeah, but it doesn't say don't steal. It says don't covet. While I'm not stealing the car, what am I doing to the car? While I'm not tearing down someone else's reputation, what am I doing to their reputation? Do I covet the car? Do I covet their lives? Do I covet their platforms? Do I covet See, covet is a heart motivation, not a behavior of the hands. It is a heart motivation that leads to a behavior. If I curtail the behavior, it doesn't curtail the heart. Have you ever tried to stop your heart from lusting, from coveting, from being greedy or fearful, from being mistrustful? Have you ever tried? To create a self-improvement project so thorough and so deep, it not only changed your behavior, but it transformed your heart. How did that go for you? The law acts as a ridiculously accurate mirror to show us things we desperately do not want to see. It uncovers the motivations behind the behaviors. It even shows us how our good behaviors are often motivated by sinful intent. People who go to church in order to be seen going to church. People who do good deeds in order to be thanked for doing the good deeds. You want to know if your motivations are pure? Go do your sacrificial good deed and don't let anyone know about it. Don't let anyone know about it so that no one can thank you. No one can see you. How does that feel? 
The law motivates, shows the motivations of our heart, not just the actions of our hands. All right, it gets worse, though. The law was given to show us how bad we are, but it gets worse. Romans 5.20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. God gave the law not just to show us our sin, but to increase. When was the last time you heard that at church? Nice Easter Sunday message. We're like, man, I've been fighting to have the Ten Commandments hung in every public place because I thought it would improve society. Mm. It shows people their sin and increases it. Good job. You are working with God. It increases the sin. I'm not making it up. It's right there. Listen, the law doesn't make us better. It stirs up our sin and it makes us worse. How does it do that? Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh, while we were living in these unresurrected bodies we've inherited from our first father, uh, before we get our, our new bodies in the image of Christ, while we're living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. How does the law increase the sin? By arousing the passions. First time I read this, it actually made really weird sense to me. And I'll tell you why, because I am by nature a rule breaker. Are you a rule breaker? Am I the only one? Some of you are like, no, I, there are rule keepers and rule breakers, right? It's a spectrum. Nobody's, nobody's totally one or the other, but you tend to be one toward one side or the other, right? Rule breakers, we kind of get it, right? If you're walking down a hallway and there's a sign on the door that says, keep out, what are you tempted to do? At least peek in. What's behind the door that's so good you want to keep me out, right? I'm walking by, is it locked, right? Oh, there's a stairwell back here, Right? While I was in Ireland, I toured the entire Guinness factory through a back door. It was awesome. It was awesome, right? It just, you tell me not to do something. Like, I'm walking along and there's a sign in the grass that says, do not walk in the grass. I wasn't even thinking about walking in the grass. I didn't care about the grass. Suddenly, I'm thinking about the grass. I'm wondering what's so good about the grass that you want to keep me out of it. The law arouses my sinful passions. I didn't have a desire to do anything bad, but suddenly I do. I was going that way, but there's a Starbucks over there. Maybe I need to walk across this grass to get to the Starbucks. So I walk in the grass. Pretty soon I'm sitting in the grass. I'm rolling in the grass. What's so good about this grass? They're telling me to keep out of it. I need to discover it. You see how that works? The law arouses sinful passions. And so I taught this for years because I thought everybody was like me. I'm a little arrogant like that. Most of us are until somebody shows us that life is not like that. And and one day my wife said, that illustration makes no sense to me. And I was like, why? She's like, because if you put up a sign that says don't walk on the grass, I'm not going to walk in that grass. There's no way I'm going to walk in that grass. I will walk two miles out of my way not to walk in that grass because I am a rule keeper. I was like, huh. How does it arouse sinful passions for rule keepers? 
Because I know how it does it for rule breakers. How does it do it for you? And then it dawned on me. I was like, how do you feel about me while I'm out there rolling around in the grass? She's like, I despise you. Not really. But she's like, I wouldn't be disappointed if a policeman showed up and gave you a ticket. Right? It's like you driving. You're not really driving the speed limit. Nobody does that. But you're driving kind of at a slower pace, and someone flies by you in the fast lane, and two minutes later, they're pulled over on the side of the road, and you're like, (laughs) right? Why do we do that? Because when we obey the rules, we feel superior. When we obey the rules, we feel like somehow we merit praise, adulation. And when someone else breaks it, we feel self-justified in exalting ourselves over them. It arouses the sinful passions. For rule keepers and rule breakers, the law does not help to improve. It stirs it up, man, and it makes it worse. So why in the world would God give us a law, a holy law, a good law, a righteous law? Why would God give us a law that would not only make our sin obvious, but make it worse? Why would God give us a law that actually empowers sin, awakens sin, and increases the poison of that sin in our lives? Why would God give us a law that increases the struggle and increases the pain? A law that comes and says, run when we have no legs. Because He knew if we could, we'd struggle through life and pretend like the poison wasn't there. We'd put a Band-Aid on the bite and pretend like the poison wasn't coursing through our veins. If we could, we would completely ignore the reality of the situation and pretend that everything was okay. Listen to me. The solution to this problem is not to fight the venom through self-improvement, through moral exercise, That's like telling a man who's been bitten by a snake, why don't you go exercise vigorously? It doesn't help. It makes it worse. The solution doesn't come through self-improvement. See, this is why God gave us a law that not only showed us our sin, but made us worse so that we would realize we are helpless to fix ourselves. That even our best efforts and best behaviors are motivated by sinful intents. That we are incurably self-centered, self-focused, self-aggrandizing, competing with God for His glory, for His power. Incurably restless because we are separated from the source of life. Because we are separated from God and the gap has been filled with poison. God wants us to know that we are dead in our sins. A corpse cannot make itself better. A corpse 
needs resurrection. We don't need resuscitation. We don't need rescue. We need resurrection. We need someone who will not just give us an antidote to the poison, but remove the poison from our veins to give us a new life. The solution isn't to stop sinning. The solution isn't to self-talk ourselves to a better mindset. The solution isn't to grow more generous or be more sacrificial or grow more patient or if I could just be more self-controlled. The solution isn't for you to fix the problem because it's not a problem that can be fixed through self-effort. God gave us a perfect tool for our self-salvation project and we turned it into a deadly knife to destroy ourselves and to destroy one another. It's no coincidence that Jesus was crucified by the most religious people of his day, the people who in fact had the law of God, but were using it as a self-improvement tool instead of listening to it and becoming humbly dependent on the God who gave it. They used it to puff themselves up in pride and their moral behavior and to condemn and to other and to alienate, and to destroy. They didn't get rid of the poison in their soul. It just became more deadly. While they were self-congratulating themselves on their moral achievements, they were so self-deceived that they killed Jesus and thought they were doing God a favor. That's how bad the poison is in our veins. That's how wicked the self-deception actually is. Left to ourselves, this is the bleak and hopeless picture of our lives. This is why I said that the biblical teaching of the resurrection is one of the most terrifying teachings in all of the Bible. Outside of the grace of God. Imagine being raised, this mortal putting on immortality, but the blood not being extracted from my veins, the poison still coursing through it on an eternal trajectory of moving farther and farther away from God, farther and farther into the darkness of self-deception and self-destruction, farther and farther into the separation from community and others, greater isolation, greater pride, greater self-pity, and greater self-destruction, plunging ever and ever more deeply into the darkness of death, and doing it willingly because we are self-deceived and self-destructed because of the poison that has so warped our vision of life. That is a terrifying perspective. If we are raised without being changed, we would follow this trajectory forever. This is horrifying which is why the next verse is such good news. It is such good news. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He was human as humanity was meant to be. He, he not only avoided every vice of the human life, he modeled every virtue. He not only avoided all the do not things, 
He did all the do things. He loved. He was generous. He gave. He, he honored. He saw the people on the outskirts. He identified with the people in pain. And he shared their pain, even when he had a right to exempt himself from it. He, he, he called out the pride of the wealthy and the powerful and the religious and the accomplished. So much so that they hated him. He was the embodiment of everything we were meant to be. He was the best of us. And he who did not deserve death willingly gave himself to die. We looked at this on Good Friday. He who knew no sin, he was made sin on our behalf. He took the venom of our death. He took the full consequence and brunt of our separation from God. He who perfectly obeyed the law and had earned its blessing, the only human to ever do so, instead took its curse. Why? He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He took the venom so that we could get life. He took the curse so that we could get blessing. He took the death so that the monster at the end of the journey would be defanged. That there would be no venom because he took it all on our behalf. Paul's saying, thanks be to God for this kind of love. That Jesus defeated death by, in fact, going into that death on my behalf. In humble meekness, when he had all the strength and power in the universe, in humble meekness, He allowed himself to be crucified. The hands that had healed were pierced, and the heart that had loved was broken. And he took it. He took it all. He took it all. All the venom. He took it all. And instead of it destroying him, he destroyed it. He died. And in his death, he killed death. He took a sin that was alien to his nature so I could be covered with an alien righteousness. He took what was rightfully mine. The consequence, the weight, the guilt, the shame so that I could gain what I could never earn. So that this corpse could be made alive not so that I could fix myself or improve myself, but so that I could simply rest in what He had done. Doing for me what I could never do for myself. Accomplishing for me what I could never win. He won the victory. And then glory of glories, He didn't just win the victory for Himself and do a victory march around creation. He invites me in and says, my victory is yours.
Death is still an enemy for the believer, but it's an enemy that has no poison. It can still bite, but it can't destroy, which is why throughout the New Testament for believers, death is called sleep because it's simply waiting, waiting. Because there will come a point at which the dead are raised and there will come a point that those who are alive and are Christ will be miraculously and suddenly transformed. We will be made like Christ because Christ has won for us what we could never win for ourselves. On that day, we will be changed and we will get bodies, incorruptible, imperishable, glorious and powerful. You'll be able to follow every desire of your heart, every impulse of your will. You'll be able to feed every appetite because every appetite will be for good because you will be connected to the source of life. You will not be trying to get life from things that can't give it. You'll no longer be competing with God. You'll be resting on God and you will be able to be fruitful and productive and restful and joyful and loving. You will be able to cry and to laugh in the joy and the purity of being able to fully embrace and follow the freedom of life as it was meant to be, as we know life was intended to be. Because he actually died. And in actually dying, he took our death and he actually rose, proving that our guilt was removed and our great sin debt was paid. Paul says, for this we can give thanks. For this we can give thanks. For this, we can be genuinely grateful, humbled by the gift, taking joy in the giver, having hearts melted by that love so that we might love in return. I invite you this Easter morning as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Give thanks to the Father for the victory of the Son. Take joy in the gift and be humbled by the giver. Receive that love and in response to that love, let your pride be undone and your fear be comforted, your sorrow be strengthened. Find the faith and the hope and the love you need to start walking in the victory he's already won. It'll be yours fully when you get your new body, but it is yours now, follower of Christ. And as you become more and more like Christ in this life, you experience more and more of that blessing in this life. I invite you, give thanks. If you're not a follower of Christ, I invite you as well. And I'm thankful you're here. I just want you to hear the invitation, men. Receive the gift. It's the only way to receive it, the gift of grace. And we do that by simply trusting in the Lord Christ, by abandoning our self-improvement projects, abandoning our self-righteousness projects, all the ways we try to, to cover ourselves or protect ourselves or build ourselves up or just lay your deadly doings down, as the hymn says, and rest. Rest in the gift that he has given you. Rest in the love that he extends to you. Rest and receive and be made new because he has won a victory for you you can never win for yourself you guys we're going to move into a time of response 
I'm going to ask you to pray and let God speak to your heart. And um, we're going to respond by sharing communion in a moment and by singing. But let's just create a moment of silence where, man, let's just bring it to God. Let's give thanks. Let's be humbled. Let's be emboldened. Let's, let's let the Spirit meet us where we are and give us what we need. I'm going to pray for us and we'll move into a time of response. Father, I thank you for the gift of your Son. I thank you that you so loved us that you gave your Son in a profound act of self-sacrifice. You absorbed the pain of our rebellion. You took the full dose of the venom of our sin. You died the death we deserve to die. And having killed death, you invite us in to the victory. Lord, we look forward to that day when we'll be able to sing with, with all. Oh, death, where is your sting? Because death has been swallowed in victory. We yearn for that day, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk progressively, moment by moment, day by day, in a greater sense of freedom and a greater experience of joy, with a greater and more deeply abiding knowledge of your love for us, and having been freed in that love, the ability to then move in generous love toward others. Change us. Transform us. Allow us to experience more of that victory. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.